Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Science of Deduction. I'm your host, Charlotte Holmes, and I've got some good news for you today. Some very good news. A few of you managed to solve last week's case. <gasps> or rather, you managed to solve pieces of it separately. Several people figured out how the husband in the story was able to disappear, and one person was able to figure out the motive behind the mystery, but nobody got the complete picture. Still, though, I'm impressed because so many people figured out how the switch was made. I'm starting to think that that one might have been a little too easy. So I'm upping the ante this week and giving you an even tougher case. More on that later. First, though, I want to highlight some of the incorrect theories that listeners proposed and point out why they're, well, incorrect. A number of people proposed the idea of the woman being blind or face blind or have some other disability, and as I stated in my responses to you, that wouldn't account for the fact that the woman's family and friends hadn't picked up on the switch either. Someone else said the woman must have been in on whatever plot the husband was brewing and cut off ties from her family, I suppose... And no, that's not what happened either. If it had, she'd be pretty foolish to have gone to the police with her findings. And she'd have no reason to open the safety, uh, the safety deposit box if she already knew it was empty. Anyway, the final incorrect theory mentioned that the man must have been disfigured in some way, like he was in some kind of accident so that his face became unrecognizable. And I have to admit that's a clever solution, but no, that's not what happened. So what is the solution? How did the woman, her friends, her family not notice that her husband had been missing for 12 years? The answer lies in something that may at first seem a statistical impossibility. A one in a trillion chance, in fact. But when you have someone who's clever enough to cheat the statistics and manipulate their surroundings, that one in a trillion chance doesn't seem so unlikely. The first 10 years of marriage between Anne and Todd Jensen were happy as happy as the first 10 years of any marriage can be, but like most relationships, things started to take a turn. Money problems, affairs, who knows? Well, whatever the cause, Todd Jensen wanted out. Simply divorcing Anne, however, would mean giving up a pretty sizable retirement fund that she had inherited from her parents and that they had placed in a joint security deposit box. And Todd thought it was a shame to forfeit all of that money. What he needed was to take it without Anne noticing, but he wanted to be far away by the time she'd picked up on the theft, preferably somewhere tropical, because, yeah, apparently that's an actual thing people do when they rob their spouses. They flee to warmer climates, as if it isn't the most cliche thing in the world. Anyway, late in 1996, Todd and Anne went to see a play, a one-man show, in fact, starring a Mr. James Barker. Todd, Anne, and their friends all commented on how much the star of the show resembled Todd. Same eyes, same nose, same teeth, even the same mole on his upper lip. He'd found his doppelganger, they joked, and that's where Todd got his idea. He tracked down James Barker before the tour left town and proposed, you guessed it, the switch. And James Barker, like any sensible person, initially refused Todd's scheme. It was cruel. They'd be caught. Todd was crazy. They didn't even look that much alike. 
But Todd was a psychologist by trade. He thought he knew how he could slowly introduce James as himself in a way that would trick the people in his innermost circle, including his wife. That and he offered James hundreds of thousands of dollars in exchange for the swap. They started small, with James answering phone calls instead of Todd, getting people used to the idea of James's voice. Then they added some meetings and dates with James wearing some makeup and minor prosthetics to alter his appearance. And these amounted to nothing more than a few comments that James had done something to his hair or he'd lost some weight. If anyone seemed to be catching on too quickly, James would excuse himself and switch back with Todd, who was lurking in a bathroom or an empty office in the same set of clothes. They went on like this until the comments grew sparser and sparser, and James was able to go weeks at a time playing the role of Todd. When he and Anne planned a vacation in Switzerland, Todd made his final move to empty the safety deposit box and flee the country, and the swap was complete. Years later, when Anne had uncovered the truth, it was almost impossible for the authorities to track down the real Todd. And even if he could be traced, there was no guarantee that the American authorities would have any jurisdiction to bring him back to the country to face justice. James was to be charged with criminal impersonation, but something curious happened. The day of the trial, when Anne was set to testify, she suddenly found herself unable to speak out against the imposter. Because, as she later told me, they had, in a way, become husband and wife. She'd fallen in love with James, even though she'd thought he was someone else. And the feeling was mutual. So, without Anne's testimony, James was only sentenced to 12 months, the minimum for his crime, and he was let out after four months for good behavior. They were remarried under James's real name the following summer. James still had quite a bit of his payment from Todd left over to support them both well into their golden years. As for Todd, as far as I was able to track him, he spent some time in a gambling house in Mexico where he indebted himself, and after a year, he crossed the ocean to Scandinavia. He went on a hiking expedition in the mountains and was never found again. That concludes case number two. And since it seemed a little too easy for some of you, I've picked a more challenging one for the next episode. I do have to warn you, though, this one isn't for the faint of heart. Is that a real expression? Is that something people actually say? Well, anyway, if you're squeamish, turn away now or turn your stereo off or take out your headphones or something. Yeah. Earlier this year, at the Hillgate Bed and Breakfast in northern Puget Sound, customers began to complain about a funny taste in the water. Eventually, enough patrons complained that a hotel clerk was sent to check the water tank. He made a gruesome discovery there. A half-decomposed body was found floating in the tank. Forensic testing indicated that the body had been lying there in the water for about two weeks, the body was male, there was no evidence of drugs or alcohol present, and there was no way to identify the man. The only evidence the police had to go on was a bizarre surveillance camera tape from around the time of the man's death that depicted a hooded individual stepping into the hotel's elevator, appearing to talk to themselves, pressing all the buttons on the elevator, and then appearing to hide from someone on the other side of the door and yell at them. A few floors later, the person stepped off the elevator and disappeared. Well, that's it. That's all you have to go on. How did the man get inside the water tank? Was it suicide? Murder? Was there any connection at all to the strange person on the elevator? 
Send in your theories to the website, and you'll find out in the next episode. Until then, game on.